Hi, I'm Susan Swain, host of C-SPAN's Q&A, where we spend an hour with nonfiction writers and historians who add context to today's news. In this episode, you'll meet Pulitzer Prize-winning author Tracy Kidder to hear about his new book, Rough Sleepers. It's the story of Harvard-educated physician Jim O'Connell, who turned a one-year assignment into a lifelong commitment to providing health care for the homeless population of Boston. Now more than 40 years old, the Boston Health Care for the Homeless program serves more than 11,000 unhoused patients each year. Tracy Kidder spent five years with Dr. O'Connell and his team to get an understanding of their work and an insight into the homelessness crisis in America. Our conversation will begin in just a moment. Tracy Kidder, your latest book is titled Rough Sleepers. What's the definition of a rough sleeper? It's a term that I think comes from the 19th century. It's used in England. Uh, It was used to describe itinerant people who slept in the rough. it's not it's not terribly common in the United States, but there is a distinction between I mean homeless <clears throat> excuse me, the people who are homeless in this country are 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 varied. if you and if you choose to put them into various categories, there are, you know, there are the intermittently homeless, the people who are homeless only once during say the course of a year, and then there are the chronically homeless, for whom homelessness is virtually a, a way of life. Oh, is a way of life, really. And among the chronically homeless, uh, and I suppose the intermittently homeless, too, you have people who do who shun the shelters, which are abundant in some places and not in others. They're abundant in Boston. Uh, they, they, they shun the shelters and they sleep in makeshift quarters or right outdoors on, you know, park benches, ATM parlors. Um, Jim O'Connell had a, one patient who slept in a rented storage locker. The, 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 these distinctions are pretty important, though. And, and now in some, some jurisdictions, some places like uh, out west in Los Angeles or uh, various other places down south where there aren't very many shelters um, or ones that are very accommodating, you end up with a, a large majority or a majority of people being rough sleepers or close to it. In Boston, it's a very small minority, but it is a very, very vulnerable one. Um, in, in Boston, fairly recent studies have shown that chronically homeless people uh, have a death rate roughly four times that of their counterparts in the general population. Whereas, And rough sleepers, it's with rough sleepers, it's much, much worse between something like 12 to 14 times higher death rate. Um, it's a tough way of life, you know. You tell the story of Boston's homeless and by uh, implication, really, the story of homelessness in the country through someone you just referenced, Dr. Jim O'Connell. Who is he? He's a um, he's a brilliant man who, as his uh, assistant says, hides it very well, Uh, hides his brilliance very well. He's uh, maybe I'll give you a quick bio. He he grew up a working class in in Newport, Rhode Island, went set academic and some I think sports records at his high school went on to Notre Dame where he got one B in four years, graduated salutatorian of his class, went on to the university of Cambridge in England uh, to study philosophy and was chosen afterwards by Hannah Aaron to be one of her teaching assistants. A brilliant guy took him quite a while 
to figure out what it was he really wanted to do. He had a lot of possibilities, I guess. Uh, <clears throat> when he was 30, he settled on medicine and uh, wanted to go to become a country doctor and go to the University of Vermont Medical School, but they wouldn't let him in, said he was too old. <clears throat> they wouldn't have sufficient stamina, so he settled for Harvard, and he uh, excelled there, got a prestigious residency in internal medicine at the Massachusetts General Hospital, and was um, just about was was just about done there when two of the eminent doctors at the hospital called called him in and asked if he would uh, defer his. He had a lovely he had a big fellowship coming from Sloan Kettering in New York, and uh, you know he's on his way to a pretty fancy career in medicine, and, and and they wanted him to spend a year, just a year, helping to create a uh, healthcare system for homeless people in Boston. This was the part of a, a, a national, well, a, a, the result of a grant from the, I'm <laughs> being too long-winded, but this was the result of a grant from the uh, Robert Wood Johnson Foundation and the Pew Charitable Trust uh, intended to, which which had given, asked cities to compete or to apply for something on the order of 17 different, 17 grants uh, to create such healthcare systems. This was in the mid 80s, what most people call the beginning of the new era of homelessness when um, it was it was rising, the condition was rising dramatically all over the country and emergency rooms were absolutely jammed uh, by, with people who had no doctors. Um, and so the Johnson Foundation and Pew decided to try this, uh, I think, and, and Jim, Jim was conscripted to help do this in Boston. He was reluctant, but he said he would do it because he felt the institution was asking him to do it, and he loves Mass General. So uh, he set out with eight people um, and started to build a program. So the, pro- of, oh, the, the program me. that he, I'm going to excuse me for interrupting. The, the program he ended up building is called the Boston Healthcare for the Homeless Program. And uh, you say today it has 400 employees and, and serves 1,100 patients each year. 11,000 oh, Excuse me, 11,000 patients each year. So uh, how is it funded today? It's funded by Medicaid mostly and by donations. Well, it has an enormous amount of support uh, in the, from the charitable part of Boston. And it always has, and also political support, which is a reflection. You know, Massachusetts is one of the most generous states when it comes to supplying uh care through Medicaid, the, the state and the federal program, as you, I'm sure you know. Um, so it's mostly funded that way. It's, uh, and, it, and it's um, got a wide variety of services it supplies. Jim is the president of the organization. He, when I met him, he was pushing 70. Now he's in his 70s. He's still president. He's pretty much uh, stepped back from all his other duties. But when I was with him, for about five years, he was still the captain of something called the street team, which is the team that specialized in looking after the rough sleepers. And and these were the roughest of the rough sleepers, the ones who would not come in even in the winter, go into shelters. They referred to the people who did go into shelters as snowbirds. Uh, funny kind of snobbery. But anyway, uh, I, I'm, I'm not sure what else to tell you. <laughs> well, tell me how you met Jim O'Connell. Uh, I was I was doing a book about a, an entrepreneur in Boston, uh, with the founder of Kayak.com, whole English, and he was very interested in homelessness in his native city in Boston, and he'd been told he should 
you should get in touch with Jim O'Connell. Uh, he was invited out on what's called the outreach van. Two two vans go out now every night, uh, 12 months a year, all night long. Uh, th- these are founded, financed by the state, uh, managed by the Pine Street Inn, Boston's largest homeless shelter. And they go out looking for people who are outside to see if they need anything, bringing them, you know, things like clean clean, so- clean socks and underwear and coats if they need them and, you know, hot chocolate and coffee and sandwiches and soup, and also really looking for people who are in trouble so that they can help them to hospitals or shelters if they'll come, if they're willing to come. Um, so I, I went out with Jim and we, you know, it's amazing. A lot of rough sleepers are like homebodies without homes. I mean, they, they go to the same places that people on the van and Jim knew where to find many of their, the patients, particularly the ones they were worried about. And, so it was a kind of tour of the nighttime streets of Boston, but a part of it that, you know, lies there in plain sight, but that I had never really known about before. And I was astonished. I was astonished, first of all, by my ignorance, which is a wonderful thing for a, a reporter to be, I think, uh, but also by the relations between Jim and, and his patients. I mean, a Harvard-educated doctor with these, uh, with, with people who were, you know, arguing with statues and parks and sleeping on park benches, the, the warmth of the relations between the uh, between him and all and those people were, was really quite startling to me. And quite, it felt good somehow. Uh, and so I wanted to go back just to see if my impression was correct. I went out with him again all alone and uh, was correct. And little by little, I, I think I decided I'd really like to write about this. And, and this. reading your book, it, it, it felt to me as a reader that there were some parallels between your 2009 Pulitzer Prize winning book about Paul Farmer, Mountains Beyond Mountains, uh, someone who worked on an international stage, but with people who had so few resources. Did you, are you drawn Can to I these kinds of stories? Oh, pardon me just for a sec. I, I did, that book did not win the Pulitzer Prize. Oh, I'm sorry. That's okay. I, it's fine. I think you have, I think the you world, have won the Pulitzer Prize. I have won the Pulitzer Prize. Yes. <laughs> but 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 let's go back to the parallels of, of it. Did you did you do you feel like you're drawn to these sorts of stories of of people that are ministering to those who are less fortunate? I, I think I have been lately, and I think you, you know I have been for some time. Really, I I I think it's a challenge to try to write about human virtue rather than human human vice. I. But but it, I don't know. I guess I am. I, what I'm really drawn to, though, is is just individual people. And I mean, I mean, I'm I'm interested in telling stories. And the engine of any good story is a human being, or a group of human beings. But you know, individual ones, not pins on a map. There's another. There are other kinds of writing that are wonderful, which I'm greatly to which I'm greatly indebted. But you know, sociology writing theoretically. But this is the way I see the world. And I always hope to. To grab onto a story that has some a really weighty subject behind it, as in this case. But I I didn't set out to do a good deed. I didn't set out to to write about homelessness. I wanted to write about this guy and his colleagues and his patients. How? Uh, but to, just to go on about Paul Farmer for a second, sure. they were friends. Paul and Jim O'Connell were friends, um, very friendly acquaintances. Jim was older than Paul, but he knew him pretty well in Boston and. Paul used to tease him, uh, saying that uh, Jim, poor Jim, never got more than a mile away from where he went to medical school. But then Paul would 
you know, was this meant to be a joke? But then Paul would say, but you know, he's dealing with exactly the same things we are in Haiti and in Rwanda and, you know, in, in, in all of the poor uh, places of the earth, uh, the same kinds of un- untreated maladies, the same kind of, um, you know, horribly deprived people, medically deprived in every other way too. Um, which is interesting, and I, I there are there are certainly parallels. I mean, the striking thing about homelessness is, I'm not sure if you're supposed to use this term anymore, but uh, actually, I don't care. But it, it this this is the third world inside the first world, and it's all the more dramatic for it, and all the more shameful too, in my my view. Do you know what I mean? I mean, to see people, what what Jim first encountered was a, an enormous. Uh, burden of untreated illness in the city that hadn't really been noticed or dealt with and and he did this in the midst of the beginnings of the AIDS epidemic um also a, a small epidemic of multi-drug resistant tuberculosis that had uh, uh, you know struck among homeless people there so it was really quite a, a dramatic mess when he started and I think to their credit they've you know they've turned it into a a somewhat smaller mess. I mean, a much less dramatic mess. I mean, it's still the inequity that it represents is is, is appalling. You uh, say that he has become internationally renowned for the work that he's done and frequently is called to Australia, other places to, to talk about what they've built in Boston. Is it replicable, what he's done in other places? Uh, that's a really hard... I, I know... That's a hard question. So uh, be, you know, have to have someone try. There, there are there are very good programs of the, that have the same from the same origins. There, are, there are I forget how many over three hundred healthcare for the homeless programs in American cities. I think three hundred fifty something like that, and some are really good. But it, but one of the big advantages Jim has had, uh, in addition to you know all the people he's recruited and the, the clever work that they've done and so on, is is the fact that they get enormous support. They have right from the beginning, from both from the governors and the, uh, of, of Massachusetts and the mayors of Boston, uh, and also from the charitable community of Boston. It, it's really it, it's a incredibly well supported organization, and I think that makes a huge difference. And it would be hard to replicate. I remember going to one meeting of these uh, healthcare for the homeless programs. I think these people. I mean, they're lovely people all all across the board, in my view. Uh, but I think these people from New Orleans, someplace like that, and they were they were reveling in the fact that they had finally gotten respite beds for about four people. And, and respite respite is absolutely necessary for homeless people. Think about getting an operation and then being sent to a shelter or out on the streets, you know, uh, to recover. Boston Healthcare for the Homeless has an extraordinary, beautiful 104-bed respite hospital. Plus a, a, a sort of step down one of another twenty with another twenty beds. It's really quite. Uh, so I think it's awfully well endowed. Uh, I mean, and it's you know one thing chases the other. It's very well endowed because it was made so well, you know, and it's been so successful, successful in the in the limited sense that it has reduced and, and relieved a great deal of suffering in the city. It hasn't even begun to try to, to bring homelessness to an end, but that's not what it was designed for. So we learn more uh, as readers about the modern homelessness crisis in the United States. And you say that it really began or upticked in the 1980s. 
through a number of I think that's generally accepted. I'm sorry. For what factors? What caused it in the 1980s to tick up? Well, that's a, I think a whole, a, whole, a whole lot of different factors. One was the big cuts, I think, in, in social service spending during the, uh, the Reagan administration. And, I'm, and, you know, and Ronald Reagan said some pretty ridiculous things about homelessness. Uh, and, and, but it's worth remembering that he never had full control of Congress. I think he did maybe for two years. So it was really both parties who were doing this. Um, I mean, he, nobody gets off the hook on this. The other thing was, you know, it wasn't deinstitutionalization of mental 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 patients. They absolutely added to the to the burden and complicated everything, and they still do. Um, I'm not that. No, I'm not. Don't mean to sound that in a way as if I'm blaming them. There was also the Vietnam War, uh, still the outgrowth of the the, the cocaine, crack cocaine epidemic. Uh, I think it was just a whole concatenation of causes. There was gentrification beginning in a place like Boston. Um, I, I, I think it, you know, I, homelessness is a, is a symptom of a really of social ills, in, in my opinion. That's really I get all that from Jim O'Connell, of course. I mean, you you couldn't solve homelessness without changing, making changes in just about every department I can think of in America. So uh, when we're talking about uh, the kinds of people who find themselves uh, homeless or unhoused, as the term is often used today, the Mm. subset of rough sleepers, as you said, is a different group. You report that they're two thirds white, all adult and 70 percent are male. Why? In Boston. Why is that? Well, I'm sure there are. There are they're just not looking at the juvenile, at, at young people who are also homeless. I mean, there, and there are a lot of those. They just they're, they're, this program, the Boston Healthcare for the Homeless program, doesn't deal directly with children, children, you know, teenagers. Uh, why is it? Why are those things we don't know? And it's it's really quite puzzling. And the, the and um, while black people are for their are vastly overrepresented represented in, in homelessness in, in the country. They are really underrepresented among the rough sleepers of Boston. And there, there are various hypotheses about that. One is that the black community is better at taking care of their own. Um, but, but nobody knows the answer to that for sure. On the gender question, though, you report that uh, it's much more dangerous on streeping on the streets for women. It's lethal. It's horrible. Yeah, it, it's not. It's pretty dangerous for everyone, but for women, even more dangerous. As you know, one might imagine. It's, uh, I, I don't think that needs much explanation, does it? Right. Women are typically. I, I probably the most endangered people though are transgender people who are homeless and happen to be transgender. That, I think, is correct. So I'm going to go back to Jim O'Connell's bio, which you you, uh, told us a little bit about. So he arrived at the Pine Street Shelter for one year, July of 1985, and he found a clinic run by nurses. What did the nurses think about this doctor's arrival on the scene? Right. Well, what he was doing, that was one of his duty stations when he first started. I mean, he had eight personnel, and he and he figured out how to dis- de- de- deploy them in teams. And he was part of the team. And he ended up, Pine Street Inn is Boston's largest homeless shelter. It had a very big clinic. 
Um, and so he was there three night, three evenings and nights a week um, for a long, long time. But when he first got there, thinking that he they'd be really glad to see him, these nurses, he had a rude surprise. He they, the nurses nurses had founded this clinic. They'd run it. Many of them were volunteers, and a lot of them didn't like the idea of a doctor coming in because they had a pretty jaundiced view of doctors, at least the way you know doctors and. In, in the way they typically had dealt with homeless people. But they basically put Jim in a, kind of surrounded Jim in a, in a chair and they had at him saying, basically, look, we, we figure you're probably coming here thinking you're going to just come for a year. You're going to get a bunch of uh, homeless people to depend on you and then you're going to desert them. And if you're going to do that, you know, it, it'd be better if you didn't come at all. You know, you probably think you're coming here to do a good deed. And, you know, Jim had told himself, well, when when he got conscripted, when he agreed to do this, uh, he, he he said to himself, "It'll be my year of giving back." So in a sense, he'd already committed that uh, that that crime, and he just sat there and took it. And then he was taken out into the lobby of the Pine Street Inn and uh, by by a nurse named Barbara McGinnis. She's not a prepossessing looking woman, small with a, uh, a high voice and so on, but she had a prepossessing mind. And she said, she told him, look, I don't agree with a lot of the nurses there. I think we need doctors, but you've been trained all wrong. Um, and, and, you know, she explained that these were people who had suffered tremendous trauma on these, these, and they would be terrified of doctors with their doctor questions and their stethoscopes. And he'd have to learn how to listen to them. And then she said, okay, we're going to go back into the, the clinic now and you're going to, you're going to soak feet. I'll show you how. She confiscated his stethoscope. And for the first two months, that's all he was really allowed to do while he was at the Pine Street Inn. And I, I, just to pause over this for a second, I was wondering, why would you do that? Why would you allow that? You know, you just, he just graduated as a, he, the last, his last duty station, he'd been running the ICU at Mass General, you know. Uh, and I, and he said, well, I've always had a hard time saying no. And in my experience of him, that's true. And I suppose it, at times it's a weakness. It's also a strength. Because it didn't, it prevented him from just sort of saying, "Yeah, I'm the, I'm a doctor. You're just a nurse. Don't, you know, don't talk to me that way. I'm not going to do that." But he did, he did it, and 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 the, the the one case that changed everything was this great big guy with huge swollen feet, uh, who was classified as a paranoid schizophrenic, whatever that means. Um, and Jim soaked his feet for had been soaking him for weeks, and finally the guy looked down as Jim was doing it and said. I thought you were supposed to be a doctor. And Jim hadn't been called a doctor there for a long time. He said, yeah, I'm a doctor. I'm a doctor. And the man said, uh, and what are you doing soaking feet? And Jim could tell that Barbara McGinnis was listening and some of the other nurses. And, and he said, I just do what the nurses tell me to do. And the, and the, the old guy said, ah, smart man, that's what I do. And within a week, the, the next thing, maybe it was even the next day, I, I can't remember, but the old, the old guy said to him, uh, hey doc, can you get help me? Give me something to help me sleep. I, I can't sleep much at all. And pretty soon after that, he had this patient whom he had met in the Mass General uh, uh, emergency room long before, and had, who had been utterly re- refused everything, every attempt to help him medically. Uh, Jim suddenly not, now had him on a whole regimen of, of remedies, of, of you know prescriptions, and, and making. <laughs> So it worked really well. And what, what, what he learned from this, I think, was that you, 
it wasn't the biblical connotations. It was the it was the practical lessons that really mattered. And one of the practical lessons was this reverse the typical doctor-patient relationship. You know, all, all through training, Jim was telling patients what he thought. Here, we got to get your kidney tests done and get got to get those numbers down. In this case, he was at the patient's feet and, and listening to what the patient had to say. And feet were a wonderful way to get to people, to get to, to make, to, to create a relationship with them for a doctor because these are homeless people who were spending all their days on their, you know, they were spending all this time on their feet. Their feet were sore um, and they'd let you soak their feet before they let you do much of anything else. Um, and they were grateful for it. And little by little, found ways to talk to them. Also, you could tell things about a person's health from their feet, about, you know, neuropathies from drinking, say, or vitamin B12 deficiencies and or or numbness in the feet and you and and the signs that frostbite leaves behind is really an important diagnostic because uh, as jim did later began to suspect this but he and a colleague later some years later did a study which showed that people who'd suffered frostbite were at a death rate something like eight times that of uh, other homeless people so that that's sort of the story where this began for him and uh and his relationship with Barbara McGinnis, it was never a romantic one. She was older than he was. There's never any question of that. They were, but they were really close friends. And she was really his guru the longest time. I could go on and on. I'm sorry. No, that's okay. I wrote down, because she does play an important role in the story that you tell until her untimely death. Uh, and I wrote down one quote of, of several. We don't want to be saints or zealots just flawed human beings who do their jobs. That's Barbara yeah. McGinnis. So it was really important to Jim. Yeah. So Sorry. what would you say, they ultimately named a, a later clinic after her. What would you say was the impact on the development of the the program that Jim built? The, this woman's yes. impact? Uh-huh. It was it was seminal. It was, it was crucial. It was the, the, the foundation of it, philosophically at least. You know, it... This is we, we go out to meet our patients. We give our we have to give listen to our patients. We have to give them the time they need. Uh, you know, we, this is not going to be corporate medicine. This is in fact going to be absolutely opposite. Um, and I, I guess what other there were other principles there. Oh, there was another one that's really important: continuity of care. If, if, if um, most of the patients, would, when Jim started in Boston, most of his patients, most of the homeless people, period, had, you know, had never, had rarely seen the same doctor twice, if they'd seen one at all. And the important thing for Barbara McGinnis and all of the others who were like-minded, nurses largely, and, and managers of shelters, was that you, patients needed uh, to have to have continuity of care. They needed to know, to know the people who were going to take care of them. And, you know, and if one person got sick or, or had to go away or died, one, one provider, they would have another there whom they were used to. It's a, it's a pretty neat idea. It's, it, it seems to have escaped um, a lot of mainstream medicine now, you know, that, that the need for that and the, but it's but but basically what you're talking about is a deeply patient-oriented kind of medicine. 
You referenced the, the weekly meetings that the medical team would have about the people they were treating. One of the people who joined that team is a psychiatrist by the name of Dr. Bonner. And mm-hmm. one of the things that struck me was his description to you about the impact of child abuse on homelessness and how prevalent it was among their, their patients. And Dr. Bonner had been at this for a long time. He's about, actually, when I came, he was near retirement. Lovely guy, uh, white-haired man with a white mustache. He was trained, he went to Harvard, he was an undergraduate in Harvard Medical School. He went through what he called Preparation H. And uh, it's an old joke. He, he told me that he, he imagined, he figured that of all the patients he'd seen over the years, homeless patients, at least, you know, probably 90% had, suffered from substance abuse disorders or, or mental illness or both, and, and that at least 75% had severe, suffered severe childhood trauma, not just bad childhoods. Jim, who has a long history too, thought that maybe that number on, for child abuse was, was, was low. I, I heard some stories that were, were really just truly awful. Uh, I mean, a lot of these, a lot of people are homeless. Are they never had much of a chance in life at all? You know, they, the, I mean, I, the worst one, one of the worst I ever heard was the poor guy whose mother cut her wrist, slit her wrist in front of him, and said, "See what you made me do." And then, then was put in a foster home where he was really horribly treated. So, you know, I don't think that story is unique. I, I you know, every, all of us probably have a favorite recipe for ending homelessness, each one of which would probably help with the other problems that are associated with it. Mine would be child abuse, doing something to stop it. It's it's just uh, awful. About the medical care that the street people had before the program, this was another statistic that was really surprising. 119 of the street team patients made 18,000 visits to yeah. Massachusetts emergency rooms. Um, and in the end, over half of those people ended up dying, nonetheless, mm-hmm. even with the care. So how did the existence of Jim O'Connell's program impact these people's relationships with emergency rooms? Oh, I think it. it, it I think they, they've taken a large load, a large burden off of the emergency rooms of Boston. I mean, without the without the program, you'd have an awful lot heavier burden, which is not to say that the emergency rooms of Boston aren't very burdened. My daughter runs one, the clinical director of one, and it's the burdens are, are enormous and the, the resources are uh, far too scanty. But but it is true that the, the, the program has as as a counter i mean i can't give you the statistics i'm not sure there are statistics that show just what they've done but it's perfectly clear when you're out there that men, most of the if not all but most of the people they're helping would would have ended up in emergency rooms certainly people in, in any kind of emergency that they help and there are a lot of those the, the you know i think you can make the argument that um it's probably saved, probably saved the Commonwealth of Massachusetts money in the long run in the city of Boston. But I don't think that that ought to be the standard by which you judge it. Nevertheless, I think it's true. 
You d- detail how very personal, he really learned the lessons from Barbara McGinnis about how personal his care was. Example of two elderly college professors who were homeless that he t- took to lunch at the Union Oyster House, took a patient to the art museum, taking calls at all hours of the day and night about his patients. And, and ultimately, he burned out about this at age 47, trying to provide this level of care and also be an administrator. So how did how did he restructure his approach to the job and how did his board help him? Well, it's a little complicated and, and, and it was a kind of rough, tough time for, for a while. But basically, uh, he, he, he just wanted to go back to being a doctor and, and, and to be you know, involved in the administration of this organization, but not in the way he had been. Because, you know, it had been, he'd helped to build it from a, from something very small into something that was, by that time, very complicated and a lot, an awful lot bigger. Um, so, I mean, basically, they finally found someone to take over who was acceptable to everyone. And, and Jim went on with his, with his life as a doctor to homeless people. I, I don't. They brought in a basically an administrator who ran the nuts and bolts and finances of the organization, which exactly. exactly. Yeah. I mean, there, there, there was a there was some difficulty with all of that, but finally they found found a man named Bob Taub who had who had uh, saved one of the, one of the maybe it was the oldest community health center in the country, a really but a clinical psychologist, and he knew how to um, handle doctors who didn't like. Uh, Things like, you know, electronic medical records, or and also knew how to handle Jim, uh, a, a very sweet, quiet, and very competent man. But they were lucky. Over the course of his administration to his patients, some of the rules changed, which was kind of interesting to note. Early on, he used to carry a liquor bottle along with him, yeah. um, and he had a practice of giving out money to people that he treated. Both of those over time ran into changing rules. How come? I don't know. You know, we, I don't know the answer to that. I do know that the liquor bottle, he, he said it's become a moral issue in, in a, a rather ironic way. Uh, we've, I mean, we just get more rule bound as, as time goes on, don't we, in almost every department. As for the money, that's a different issue really altogether and, 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 a, and a kind of a vexed one, but not for him. You know, a lot of people, some people don't think one should give money to homeless people. Um, once you give money to the programs that support them, that's fine. If you really feel that way, others feel, no, I, I'd like to give money to them and I'm not going to touch strings to it. It's going to be a gift freely given or I won't give it at all. That, those are the two poles of that. And Jim represented the second one. He had his reasons uh, and, and, and Barbara McGinnis had actually suggested it to him. That's probably the strongest reason he had. And he'd done it for years. He got, maybe th- things got a little bit out of hand, though, at some, I think, finally. Although I think some of the criticism was a little over the top. And it's my understanding that when this was discussed at the board, they, everyone pretty much acknowledged, well, they did give money to homeless people, too. As though it were a crime. I mean, honestly. <laughs> but the rules have changed a little, sure. At this they point, always do. They, you know, when he said when they when they started, I don't know if I can tell this story over 
C-SPAN, but I'm, I'm gonna, you can always cut it out, Susan. When they started, they, when they had the first Barbara McGinnis house, the first respite, they created another one with, and then took, took the name Barbara McGinnis and put it over there on that one. But the first, the, the first respite they had, that was the first, they didn't know how to build a respite. They didn't know what the rules ought to be. So they kind of decided those who were running the show then, just a few, just a really handful of people decided the best thing would be no rules at all. We're not, we don't want to confront the people who are coming here with a whole set of rules. We'll just be no rules. But very early on, I mean, the nurses at the Pine Street Inn had donated a pool table, a very nice pool table to this respite for recreation for the, for the people who are going to stay there. And really early on, they found a, a couple of people having sex on the pool table. So the first rule of the of the uh, of the respite was no sex on the pool table. And from then on, you know, over the years, more and more and more and more rules accreted. So, and I, are are some of those also by the and Medicaid rules and funding rules that come along with taking money? I'm sh- I know there are there are, there are a number of those rules. I I I'm not an expert on that. Sure. Honestly. Yeah, I understand. But it, it is a, an interesting thing as it gets more successful, um, and more rules come along with the process. I, I wanted yeah. to pause at this point and just uh, play one clip. There are many that if people want to find them on the internet, but this is a just a brief clip from a CBS news profile of Dr. Jim O'Connell, just to let people see and hear him and how he operates. Ooh, that one hurt, didn't it? No, no, no. I did, but I'm not going O'Connell dispenses just about everything, from stitches to the arm. You're clean. You want a Band-Aid? To surgery for the soul. Will you come in? Will you do that? She wants to come in. If they can no longer be treated on the street, O'Connell finds them a temporary treatment bed in a shelter. This man is unbelievable. This is my doctor. even my doctor for life. Do you ever sit and think, I know what I'd be making 30 years into an oncologist's career? No, I never think about that anymore. <laughs> I'm not a smart economist, but it was a great soul move. <laughs> Tracy Kidder, that's Dr. O'Connell at work. What are you hearing listening to that? I'm certain the same guy. I know. He hasn't changed much. You know, when I met him, he was, as I said, he was what is it? Polling 70? He, 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 and he was still a very lively, lively man with silver hair. Uh, and he had the same disposition. His, he told me once, um, I, he used the word joy uh, fairly often. And I was puzzled about that. And, and I asked him, uh, not completely puzzled, but I, I kind of wanted to know what he meant. And he said, it's a system of friends, meaning as I understand it, patients, practitioners, all of them friends. And that's where the joy comes from, I think, he said. And I think by joy, what, what, what I sensed being with him and his colleagues, particularly the street team people, all of whom, each, each of whom was really quite wonderful person in, in his or her own way, um, was, it's not joy isn't joy as I understand it, at least, as I think Jim was using it, is doesn't isn't pleasure. It's not, you know, oh, let's go out and have a good time. It's it has to do with um, something deeper. Something. Uh, well, maybe the best way to think about it is if you if you've studied really hard to be a medical practitioner, and you're good, you've gotten really good at it. How would you feel if you were suddenly allowed, not suddenly, but we're allowed to. To, to, to apply your skill 
to help the people who needed it the most, the most that, you, that people needed your, your, your talents, your care the most, and, and, and who were tremendously grateful for it. It sounds like a pretty good job to me. And I felt it was enviable. And I would sense this sometimes with people. It wasn't that things weren't tremendously sad sometimes as they were, but they were also kind of wonderful. And the feeling of that, look, this big problem wasn't being solved, but they were really addressing some of the worst sides of it uh, directly. And, you know, it's almost like, you know, I, I could just a, as a feeling, I wasn't doing anything, but a, a, a sort of like borrowed popularity. I used to feel that way with Paul Farmer in places like Haiti. You know, <laughs> I, I can't, it, it wasn't borrowed, it was sort of a contact high, something like that. I don't know, I don't know what that is either, really, not anymore. In, in the second half of your book, we learn a lot about one particular patient that that Dr. O'Connell and uh, the staff got very involved in, Tony Colombo. That's a pseudonym, correct, Tony Colombo? Yes. Yeah. Who, why did you end up with so many people that have that come through Dr. Jim's care and focusing on Tony Colombo's story? What did he yes, say he, to you? He fascinated me. Well, I, I just really liked him. He and 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 was well. I mean, part of it that he was he was so open to me. Um, I I must have you know thousands of pages of. Of, of 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 recordings of of his he he um but he, he was he was this great big and and as he began to unfold you began to learn more and more about him great big guy who had had a really difficult life um right from pretty early on a lot of talent big and strong still a powerful person had spent 20 years in prison for a really nasty thing, crime, but he'd done his time. But the problem was that he'd come out of prison uh, with a classification, it was a sex crime, uh, that basically condemned him to homelessness, particularly him. I mean, some people can can can, un- can reduce their classifications, but it's not easy to do. It's a little bit of a catch-22. It's much easier to do if you're not, if you're housed, but it's really hard to get housed if you've got one of these classifications. Jim got really, really fond of him. And partly because I th- the man was looking for a purpose in life. And he just, uh, on his own, this is why I read, read it anyway, he just decided he was going to be, help Jim. He was going to kind of be Jim's lieutenant, his his eyes and ears among the, the, the patient population. And he also became the protector of the weak. Um, and, I mean, later we learned that Women and the, the women patients, many of the women patients referred to him as the night watchman because he protected them at night. Uh, it, and, and I mean, I saw direct, I, I saw the evidence of this. He, he was, I, I saw him protecting people. I, and when he came inside to McGinnis House, as he did fairly often, he became the social director there. He, uh, you know, it's, it's charming. He could be utterly charming. And then that little trip that we took to the art museum, you know, he'd grown up in Boston and he'd never even been to that part of town. Uh, just, you know, it's a provincial place. Many cities are pieces of them. Uh, and he was an astonishing, my, 
my, my wife was with was with us. She's an art she's an artist and an art historian, and she sort of took him on, and he he, he very quickly turned into the, one of the most amazing students. You know, to her, it was just a, he he was seeing things. He was talking. He, he didn't have any of the the lingo. He'd never read any art history. That finally we got to one point, and I remember this so well. We were looking at a, he was looking at a, a, a nude, a, a painting. I was by, it was actually a drawing by Egon Schiele. And there was something odd about the hand and the, and the wrist. And he was staring at it. And he, and he kind of said softly to himself, but to my wife said, doesn't that kind of look like the, the David? And I said, Tony, the David, you, you must, have you, have you studied the work of Michelangelo? And you must have. And he said, ah, I know. I said, no, Michelangelo, the Colosseum, David, I'm Italian. He said, I'm Italian. I didn't study art history. But the observation that he had made was one that, you know, I don't think almost anyone but an art historian could have made. And he had no training at all. Just, just stuff he'd absorbed probably from little postcards of, um, of Michelangelo's works and uh, I don't know. I, I I remember that day that as he disappeared, Jim, uh, Jim, I stood with by Jim. Jim watched him go off, and and he said, pretty much to himself, "I just can't help wondering, thinking about what he could have been." It was true, you know, man, a, a person with great native ability who had never really gotten to use it. He, he the one other thing about him was that he. I remember when I first met him, he started talking about what a good guy he was in prison. I mean, how he helped people and particularly young black inmates who would, you know, have been thrown in jail like so many black people in this country. Um, and I thought, oh, yeah, sure. You know, this. But then I ran in, first I ran into, I ran into a person who had spent a lot of time with him in jail. And he said, no, that's true. That's really true. And then another who said it even more emphatically. Um, so... Uh, that those are all the reasons I became I became fascinated with him, and also I, you know, I needed. You've got to focus if you're trying to tell a story. It's got to focus somewhere. I could have done it with. Uh, I tried to give you a sense of a whole community of of patients, but I needed one. I didn't know how that story would turn out or what was going to turn up, but it just struck me as inherently fascinating. And I don't want to tell you the rest of the story. Well, I do uh, want to ask two other questions about him. Dr. O'Connell referred to Tony as his quintessential Sisyphus, the parable of the rock eternally pushed up the hill. What did you learn uh, through Tony about the intractable nature of of homelessness for these rough sleepers? Well, he, he he could come inside and become with he'd usually he'd usually sleep for twenty four hours straight, and then he'd resume his role as the as the social director. And he'd seem perfectly rational. I mean, even better than just rational. He'd be getting people to come together to all sit sit around and with Dr. Jim in the atrium on Sunday nights. And I don't know. He was trying to figure out better ways that the that the lunch counter the lunch room could be served and so on. Uh, but you put him back out on the street and within a week or two is entirely different. I think the, the rigors of living out there are just astonishing. I mean, and there's, you know, it's very dangerous. 
it's very dangerous physically. I mean, he ended, ended up getting hurt quite badly a couple of times, but it would never be just by one person, not in his case. I mean, with baseball bat or a knife. Um, what else did I learn? I, I, I did it, that it was that, that to be sentenced to the streets is pretty much a death sentence. That's what I learned. And it, and it's, if, if you, when I try to imagine myself in that situation, I, first of all, I think I would take every substance I possibly could just to spend some time away from, in my mind, that, away from that. And I would, uh, I doubt I'd, I'd live very long. I don't think I'd be tough enough. But these, these people are really hardy, but they're not survivors. There's no way of surviving. It's a, it's, it's gruesome and difficult and humiliating. Um, you know, people don't recognize you as human most of the time, or even recognize you at all. We have this wonderful way. I, I'm just as guilty of this, or I have been, as anyone. But this little sleight of mind that allows you not to, that allows you to walk by someone, you know, who's standing on a corner asking for money or sleeping in a doorway. What do you think keeps uh, Dr. Jim O'Connell and the people that work with, especially with the rough sleepers, going? I mean, so many of these stories have unhappy endings. How do they keep themselves coming back to work all the time? Well, I think I, I tried to cover that earlier. I mean, it, it's what Jim says. It's a system of friends. There are these. It's it's a it's a it's a deeply satisfying sort of work, with which has a lot of sadness in it. Um, and I do think, you know, everybody probably finds their way to every one of those people probably finds a slightly different way to manage. One of the ways, though, is to do things as a team, because then you can share those 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 enormous disappointments. Um, and, you know, just, one of my favorite people on that team is a guy who's been a, a Navy, old Navy guy who had had a terrible problem with addiction himself and had gotten through it. And was a recovery coach now, and he he had the most buoyant attitude I've ever seen. He'd say, "I count sobriety in hours," you know, or you know, someone might have gone into detox and then relapsed, and he'd say, "But drinking drinking's ruined for her now. You know, she's never going to enjoy it again the way she did." Or you know, he'd, and he, I mean, as a guy who would go to go to go to court and argue on behalf of his patients, he was, he, uh, or as he called them, our folks. I don't know. It, he he was gonna, it was pretty hard to discourage him. I mean, he'd get discouraged, and and then he'd lose favorites. And that, that that happened a lot. But somehow, I think this, this you know to think of one of the things I learned from that guy called Tony was the incredible importance of purpose for human beings of having a purpose in your life. I guess I kind of knew that already, but not in such a vivid way. And then I look at these people working on the street team and Jim, but they have an amazing purpose, which is to try to alleviate some of the worst suffering around them. It's, I think, I think they're enviable in some ways. And I think that's what kept them going and genuine fondness for homeless people. One of the things is that, you know, that you learn is these are not ciphers. These are not pins on a map. These are, and these are, these are, these are, not non-human people. Sometimes there are things about homeless people, things they can't help, um, lacks of, lacks, a, lack, a huge lack of resources. Uh, I mean, if you, if you were never trained to 
and house, how to clean a house, you, how would you clean, clean an apartment once you get in one? But much more often, it's lacking just some basic resource. How do you keep yourself clean in a city like Boston, which has almost no public bathrooms? And I think some of those deficits make some homeless people seem intractably primitive, even alien. But the fact is, you know, if, that you can only do that if you look at the, these people from the corner of your eyes, because if you if you if if you got to know them, you'd like some and dislike others, undoubtedly. But you would have to acknowledge every single one of them is, you know, I like to say this carries the most complex structure in the known universe on their shoulders, and every single one of them is just as human as you and I, and 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 needs a lot of the same things. And I don't even want to talk about deserving. I mean, I'd rather talk about rights. <laughs> There is a whole section of the book that we have, don't have time to get to with, about the effort to find housing for these people and how the system really works against that, and which will direct your readers to find out for themselves. I want to tell you that we only have about four minutes left, and I have two last questions for you. Yes, ma'am. What is, yeah. uh, how did this whole hands-on healing fare during the COVID emergency? Well, the Boston Healthcare, Jim got sick, uh, got a ailment that, that, that required him to take a a drug that, you know, made him more more prone to infection. So he really had to go and be at a distance. I mean, he, he was on the phone every day to the program, and he was trying to lend mostly encouragement. But the leaders of the program, you know, were were working incredibly hard. They had to almost rebuild the whole thing. They, uh, they they were they they ran a bunch of. They helped the city. Uh, in the state, run a whole lot of special programs for homeless people, largely um, in, in a great big uh, field hospital that had been created in the city. And and then they turned a good part of McGinnis House into a, a quarantine, a place for quarantine for COVID patients. Um, I mean, apparently I wasn't there either because I have an autoimmune problem myself and I'm pretty old. Um, I wish I had been. It was a really stressful time, really stressful. And it, it, things changed because of it that haven't changed back yet, I, I gather. Like so much but, of society. The last question yeah. I really wanted to ask you is about Jim O'Connell himself, because as you said, he had health issues, and we learned about that in the last part of the, bill, the book. So question is, um, at some point, he's going to stop working. And I'm wondering if he has built a program with enough staying power that it is not dependent upon him as a central force of it. Oh, I think that's absolutely true in his case. And I think it's the case in Paul Farmer with Partners in Health, but even truer with Jim. I mean, this is um, one of the things about this program is that it's been able to recruit really excellent people who could make more money elsewhere. But particularly among providers, but they get to do, they really get to do the job they imagined themselves doing when they became nurses and doctors and nurse practitioners and so on. Those people are not going to quit and give up. And the city needs this, needs this organization. The, the state needs it too. And they probably just need to, you know, you know, no, it can't, it won't, it couldn't possibly die without him. And he's, and he's gradually stepped back enough, I think, to let the other leaders come in. And some of those people are wonderful. They're all wonderful, actually. In my opinion, I know I sound like a Pollyanna, but that is a really extraordinary organization. I never heard, I'm sure it happens, but I never heard people yelling at each other. Um, you know, I mean, obviously patients sometimes at, at practitioners, but the providers, 
I don't know, it was just, it seemed like a gentler place than I, than I'd ever seen a gentler organization. And maybe because it's largely made up, I think a majority of the people there are nurses, the majority of them are women. The book is called Rough Sleepers, Dr. Jim O'Connell's Urgent Mission to Bring Healing to Homeless People. Tracy Kidder, thank you for giving us this lens on the work that Jim O'Connell has done and on the larger problem of homelessness, not just in Boston, but across the country. Thanks for spending an hour with us. You're welcome. Thank you. Thanks for listening to C-SPAN's Q&A. And subscribe to us wherever you get your podcasts so you'll never miss an episode. And while you're there, please take a minute to rate and review us. You can also send us an email about Q&A at podcasts at c-span.org. Send me your questions, your comments, or ideas. Your feedback is welcome. 